Hi, this is Phil Zimmerman, creator of PGP, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and this is episode 214 for April 5th, 2021. And as you have probably surmised from the tagline, we will be interviewing Phil Zimmerman today. Uh, though I, in the future, will be spreading those around and not necessarily using the same person I'm interviewing with at the beginning of every uh, interview. But anyway, so today that is actually true. So Phil Zimmerman is of PGP, or pretty good privacy fame. And uh, I don't want to get into the whole history here, but it was quite the history uh, back in the 90s, basically, when the web was really just starting to take off and the need for you know secure communications was becoming evident uh, to protect you know, uh, your banking data or whatever communications you were sending from prying eyes, the U.S. government uh, didn't want really good cryptography getting into hands of, honestly, anybody, uh, certainly anybody outside the United States, because they wanted the crypto to be weak enough for them to crack. So, that, you know, kind of, honestly, a whole lot has not changed. Uh, they're still trying to do the same things today. But... Um, so back in the day, Phil Zimmerman, who was an anti-nuclear weapon activist and a, uh, a free speech proponent, uh, created this really cool software routine or program called Pretty Good Privacy. And let me tell you that that is an extremely humble name. It is honestly, in a lot of places, still considered the gold standard for encrypted email communications. It's kind of hard to use, to be honest. But, you know, if you're determined enough and you want to get something out, then you would use PGP and you still can today. But back in the 90s, uh, the U.S. government tried to prevent any strong cryptographic software or tools from being exported. They actually classified it as a munition to bring it under some sort of weapon export law or, or regulation to try to keep a lid on this. And, of course, that was never going to work. It's just math. And so anyway, back in the day, uh, Phil Zimmerman actually had <laughs> came in with some run-ins but uh, with the U.S. government and I think came away unscathed other than I'm sure being scared half to death for several years. But it's, it's an amazing story. And just that whole era, it's called the Crypto Wars, or that was part of the Crypto Wars. And uh, if you're interested at all, check out a book called Crypto by Stephen Levy. And I own the book and I've been meaning to read it for a long period of time. It just hasn't bubbled up to the top yet, but I will definitely be reading that myself. Um, and it kind of goes through the whole history. And there were other things, too. If you were in Pakal, if you were back, uh, if you were old enough uh, of a certain age, and you remember talking about the Clipper chip and things like that back in the day, that's all kind of around this fight between, this friction between the government, uh, the intelligence agencies, the law enforcement agencies, you know, not wanting crypto to be in the hands of, well, anybody. And if that was, they, they need to be really weak crypto. Uh, which we all know today, we, well, we should know today, we should have learned our lessons about this. And we didn't, obviously, because a lot of what we're hearing now, people are calling Crypto Wars 2.0. But today, we are going to be talking to that self-same person. Phil Zimmerman is quite the interesting gentleman uh, currently living in Europe. And it's uh, normally it would be a two-part interview, but uh, we're going to do it all today in one go. We actually talked for a long time, and I thought the interview itself was much longer, but it turns out it was mostly he and I just yapping, so, so the extra stuff. So I'm going to carve out a good portion of that extra stuff, 
and make it bonus content for my patrons. So uh, I'll talk a little bit about what that bonus content contains after our interview. So uh, real quick, before we get into the interview, this was taped some time ago. I went through a phase there where I had a whole bunch of interviews kind of piling up. It was, it was a embarrassment of riches, as they say. Feast or famine sometimes with the podcast uh, interviews, but anyway, a whole bunch of them. And so anyway, you're going to find that a couple references here might sound a little odd because they were taped almost two months ago. So anyway, keep that in mind as you're listening. And today we're going to talk about social media. I actually was reaching out to Phil last, late last year, and we ended up having a, got about a half hour conversation over FaceTime about his take on where things have gone with social media and how it's really gotten out of hand. And it's honestly hurting modern society. And so we're going to talk about that. He's got some very strong opinions about that and what to do and how it got to be where it is and how we might fix it. And, you know, how it's led to things like virtue signaling and, you know, on the flip side, how anonymity, you know, could lead people to say horrible things and how just the whole you know, financial model of the social media companies where they're, you know, they're driven by engagement. They're trying to get you to stay on their website as long as possible. And often the way the algorithms do that is not a productive thing for society. In fact, it's quite harmful. So anyway, we're going to get into all that today. And Phil has some really interesting thoughts on that. So I hope you really enjoy this. I know I did. Now we do touch on a little bit of political stuff and I know I'd try to avoid that as much as possible. Uh, but I, think it's pretty even handed and I don't think it's too far out of, out of bounds, but just, you know, trigger warning, I guess, I guess maybe. And, and I guess I, I will define one thing real quick. We kind of throw out a term called section 230. And we've talked about that actually on this show multiple times with different people, largely from the EFF and elsewhere. Uh, but it's a portion of the communications decency act of 1996. And it really honestly let the web thrive to the point where it did today. It kind of said that Platforms can't be held legally responsible for the content of people posting on the website. So, you know, so many websites like social media in particular, people post their opinions. And and one of the analogies I've heard used is, you know, if there's a criminal enterprise happening in a building somewhere, you know, you don't sue the landlord, you sue the criminals. Anyway, so we do throw out this term section 230 and that is what that is referring to. Okay. I think that's enough by way of preamble. Let's let's get to our fascinating interview with Phil Zimmerman, creator of PGP. Phil Zimmerman is the creator of Pretty Good Privacy or PGP. PGP is still widely regarded as a gold standard for secure email communications and uh, caused quite a bit of controversy when it was introduced in the early 1990s. Phil went on to form Silent Circle and win several prestigious awards, including the U.S. Privacy Champion, and was inducted into the Cybersecurity Hall of Fame. Welcome back to the show, Phil. Glad to be here. So it's been a couple of years since we last talked. We last had an interview, so catch us up a little bit. What have you been up to in that time? Well, waiting for the opportunity to venture outside of my apartment. Oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> so where where are you physically located? You're you're not in the U.S. You're in Europe. Where are you? That's right. I, I'm in the Netherlands, in in the Hague. And how how have things been there? How have things been there with uh, COVID? Well, um, you know, it's Europe is going through its you know its last bad time because there's now vaccine deployment going on. Mm -hmm. I think I'm scheduled to get something later this month. Oh, great. I'm, I'm old enough to qualify. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
Has it been as bad there? I mean, is it in the U.S.? I'm not sure if you know how to compare if you haven't been here, but I mean, it, you know, it, things around here are pretty pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, we we're watching with horror from from across the pond. We see things happening in the U.S. with uh, it, I I mean, it's appalling. It it's more like a developing country. <laughs> yeah. Well, we got the vaccines vaccines rolling out too. Uh, I'm in a later phase. I'm I'll be lucky to have mine by May or June, but uh, I will be be there with bells on when my when my time comes up all right so you and i had a discussion a couple months ago we're talking about kind of the sad state of the internet and in particular the negative influence of social media has had on society and seemed to be a particularly hot issue for you and so i thought that'd be a great thing for you and i to bring you back and talk about so you know social media you know was supposed to be you know when facebook first came out and it was supposed to be this kind of something that brought us all together you know allowed us to keep and keep in touch and find and get in touch with old friends and things like that. And, you know, I think for some period of time, it kind of worked, but then things somewhere took a turn <laughs> in your view, like when and how did things change? When did, where do we go wrong? Well, I, I think that having a business model that optimizes for engagement is the, the dominant reason here. I mean, it's a, it's a business model that monetizes customer behavior. I'm not customer, sorry, user behavior. The customers are advertisers. <laughs> right. So this is bad because, you know, they're trying to keep you engaged all the time. And nothing drives engagement as much as outrage. Hmm. And and so they try to keep you on all the time angry. And, yeah. and that's tearing society apart. It's not that they want to tear society apart. They don't. They're, they're not trying to tear society apart. It's just that they're advertising a revenue model benefits from people being on all the time obsessively clicking on confirmation bias news stories right and 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 getting more and more angry and so this results in a in a society tearing itself apart uh, the engineers who developed these algorithms didn't realize at the beginning when they first started developing the algorithms they didn't know where it would lead mm. you know they were just trying to make money <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, today we would call it doom scrolling, especially during COVID. You know, it, we it's watching a train wreck. It's all you know. Yeah. Pick all, pick all your, your metaphors. I mean, the the worst effects that we see are you could regard them as emergent behavior, emergent properties. I, you know, th there is there's a concept of emergence. It's an interesting uh, scientific discovery of it's one of the most important discover discoveries of the 20th century, along with uh, Einstein's. Mm -hmm. relativity and quantum mechanics, uh, you know, the discovery of how complex systems are, are driven by low-level rules. And so, you know, you, you can have very complex systems emerge from simple local rules. And so the, the idea of just getting people to stay on and click on things, that's a kind of a low-level thing, but it results in high-level behaviors that are immensely destructive, uh, leading to, uh, you know, genocidal events in, in Burma and uh, mm. people becoming hyperpolarized in the United States. And we, we have to do something about this. There's a documentary film called uh, The Social Dilemma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've recommended it many times. Yeah, it goes into this in, in some detail, and I, I would recommend it to anyone. Yeah, and I'm sure we were going to cover, you know, some of those aspects today and get your opinion on some of that stuff. 
One of the, one of the things that I think, you know, kind of one of the fundamental changes that came about was the timeline, like the Facebook and Twitter used to, you know, in the early days, it was just kind of linear, you know, you, you followed certain people and then you would just get a linear chronological list of things that they posted, you know, the people you followed. And then when these algorithms started kicking in, it started giving, it started tweaking that it started favoring yeah. certain things over others. And I think that was a, like a, one of the particular engineering, you know, feature changes that led to some of this effect we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it is these algorithms that are just driving things in absolutely crazy directions. We have to do something about it. We have to stop it. We have to change the algorithms. We have to change the business model. We have to intervene here. Well, one, and one of the other things that I think that became so popular and that people wanted so much were things like the like button or the pin it button. You know, these these little uh, these little tags that showed up on all sorts of web pages. Not just you know, obviously not just Facebook. They, this is this allowed them to get their you know kind of claws into everything, right? It, if and these little buttons <laughs> that were on the pages did so much more. I mean, even if you didn't click them, they they were used to track you. But it was also kind of developed this whole you know psychological need for approval, you know, where people, yeah. how, how many likes did you get? How many people follow me? And I, I, I think that has to fall into this somehow too, don't you think? Well, yeah, um, it, it drives people to seek this, these likes, but it also drives the, the likers <laughs> into uh, signaling, you know, sort of virtual virtue signaling. Mm. They hit the like button so that everyone else can see them hit the like button. And you know, I mean, this happens on both the left and the right. Um, sure, yeah. People behave differently when they think they're being observed by their peers. You know, I, I mean, on, on the right, there was a uh, a lot of public criticism in the Republican Party against Liz Cheney because she voted for impeachment right. in the House and calls for her removal. But when a, a secret vote was taken, <laughs> then every, you know, two-thirds of them voted for, to keep her in, in place. And the, the the big difference that is that it was a secret ballot, and 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 so that means that virtue signaling w wasn't there. Right. You know, everybody's everybody was expressing their opinion privately, and and so you know, virtue signaling gets people to pile on and and mm. and go along with the mob, and and we see this on the left also. Uh, you know, the cancel culture. Oh, sure. Where people will criticize somebody like J.K. Rowling or, or uh, some, somebody who, who does something that everybody wants to condemn so that everyone else can see them condemning it. Right. So, uh, you know, th I mean, this happens all the time on social media. So I, I think that we need to devise algorithms that try to d disarm this virtue signaling behavior. You know, we, we ought to have like buttons that nobody can see us press the like buttons, except the person who made the original posting. You can mm. let them know whether you like their article or not, but no one else can see you do it, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. And, and, then, and, then, and then maybe that person could decide if they want to reveal to the world how many people like their article or how many disliked it. But if they do the reveal, they would do the reveal where it would just it would just reveal the numbers and not the identities. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So that brings up another aspect of this, and, and kind of the opposite of that is what do you what do you feel about 
anonymity or maybe pseudonymity on on the on the net what how has that contributed to this the the ability for somebody to it goes both ways i think based on what you're saying the virtual signaling part is where you want to be known for saying or doing something but the flip side is is when you're you can hide behind a pseudonym yeah you can say or do whatever you want as well and how is that how do you think that plays into all of this well anonymity uh quite often will bring out the the worst in people you know if they think that no one will ever identify them they're more likely to to engage in rep- reprehensible behavior hmm. they will will say the, the most uncivil things that they would never say if they were speaking in public if nobody knows who you are you can say blood curdling you know harsh <laughs> criticisms that if you were standing in a public forum and and facing the person that you were criticizing you know in, in the physical world you would never say those things and yet, I I think that to your point though about the about the virtue signaling that there it, there's a countervailing thing, and I think at, at, when you're in the echo chamber, when you're surrounded by people who are getting the same materials you are because of these algorithms, you I think some just look what happened with January sixth and some of the things around that there were people proudly posting things under their under their name. Yeah, well, I I think that's I, I, you know, people find themselves in the old days conspiracy theories didn't get very far because if you if you believe some outlandish conspiracy theory you, you would look around to the physical neighborhood you live in the house next to you and the house across the street and the family living down the block none of those people believe in that conspiracy in that conspiracy theory and so you're less likely to talk about you know this conspiracy theory and, it, and so it has a normalizing effect on you to be surrounded by pe- normal people that don't buy into this conspiracy theory. But if you go on the net and you go into some forum where everybody there buys into the conspiracy theory, then you're getting lots of positive reinforcement mm-hmm. and everybody agrees with you. And so you let it all hang out. And then you start thinking, well, this is the normal, uh, you know, everybody <laughs> thinks this way because I'm looking around. Everybody around me thinks this way. So therefore, the whole world does. Right. Uh, and this, this, is, this is how QAnon accelerates, is that these people who believe in QAnon, which is just unbelievable <laughs> nonsense, you know, they, they, they find themselves in an environment where everyone else agrees with them. Yeah. And in fact, they, they can even extend that because these social networks can even allow them to organize events in the real world where they all go collectively <laughs> you know, to demonstrate their beliefs. Mm-hmm. And then they really are surrounded by, in the physical world, by people who d- agree with them because the social network made that easier to organize. Uh, so, you know, there's a positive feedback loop. And I, when I say positive feedback, I don't mean that in a positive way. Right, right, right. I know what you mean. Positive feedback loop is a very bad thing to happen <laughs> in, in a lot of physical systems. And that's what's happening here. So it's a self-reinforcing to, to be surrounded by people that you would never meet those people in real life before the internet. Right. And as you were saying, I mean, and, you know, prior to the internet with this, with this, this global communication system that didn't respect, you know, regular, regular physical boundaries, you would have to go through a lot of your neighbors and friends who would give you that funny look like, huh? You know, or razor. I was like, yeah, it is, know. it is somewhat analogous to the concept of herd immunity. I mean, you're, you know, the people who live near you in your neighborhood, physically near you, they, they have a certain kind of immunity to this, to these uh, conspiracy theories because they, 
Well, because they because they have common sense, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're not idiots. <laughs> and 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 so if you try to spread your conspiracy theory, it's probably not going to get very far because people around you were vaccinated by their parents and by their uh, by their school, you know, by their yeah. education. They were vaccinated against these nutcase theories. And so they're immune and they they wouldn't spread it to the neighbor beyond them and the neighbor beyond them. You know, it wouldn't get anywhere. So that's kind of herd immunity. But you go on on the Internet and you're surrounded by people whose immune systems are completely open to this conspiracy theory. You know, they have not been vaccinated. They they for some reason, which I don't quite understand, (laughs) Mm. they are susceptible to these conspiracy theories. And it spreads rapidly through those environments, right? And to be, and to be clear, we're talking about QAnon. There, there's there's several these, you know, flat Earth. There's you know, you talk about oh, anti, yeah. anti-vax. There's, a, there's, there's an many many of these, of these conspiracy all theories. across the spectrum in terms of you know, and they're all wrong. I mean, <laughs> you know, everyone I've ever heard of is wrong. Uh, I, I I was giving a talk a couple of years ago, and I got up in front of the audience, and I think it was uh, an audience of Bitcoin enthusiasts. And and uh, and and I made the remark that you know well all all conspiracy theories are wrong, and some guy <laughs> raised his hand. He says, "Well, they can't all be wrong." And I said, "No, but the ones that you believe in are wrong." <laughs> <laughs> How'd that go over? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a mean thing for me to say. You know, I probably shouldn't have put it so harshly, but you know, it was true, mm, right? <laughs> So okay, so you mentioned the algorithms a lot, and that's and that obviously is where. Well, the let me re- let me just say that oh, all ahead. the conspiracy theories that I ever encounter are wrong. Well, they're usually called conspiracy theories for a reason. Until they once they stop being called that, then they're no, then someone is verifying them. But until yeah. then, yeah. And and I and this is true for both the left and the right. Oh, I mean, yeah. you know, they people on both sides of that spectrum are you know equally susceptible to this. I mean, I've met people that thought that 9-11 was a inside job you know yeah that it wasn't that no airplane hit the pentagon that it was uh a missile that hit the pentagon yeah well you know lots and lots of people were driving to work that morning on the the, the freeway that runs next to the pentagon it was rush hour and so the, the the highway was jammed you know with with witnesses and they saw a giant airplane fly into the pentagon right. oh, there were so many witnesses there was a it was just an unbelievable number of witnesses to this. So uh, to say that, oh, no, no airplane hit the Pentagon. I mean, so that's that. I don't know. Is that would that be on the left? I guess that would be on the left. Right. I, I guess. I don't I know. I have no idea. But it's yeah, we humans certainly are, have the capacity for this. And for some reason, the, culturally, I think the United States, Americans in particular, love their conspiracy theories. I, I'd, I'd love to. I'm sure there are books on this. <laughs> but yeah sociological things that some phenomenon so anyway it just seems to equally affect the left and the right yeah 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 all right so again you so you talked about uh you've talked about these algorithms a little and obviously that is at the root of much of this but but here's the thing so these these companies facebook google tiktok twitter all these companies that have man, you know that have managed to really nail this engagement algorithm thing i mean they're we live in a they're private companies and in a capitalist society and they have this fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to maximize profit and bump their share price. So all these things that they're doing and they've done well and they've optimized that crazy. But they're they're inflicting absolutely horrific harm on society. Sure. 
And, and, and I, like I said, that when they, when they first developed the algorithms, it, it wasn't very obvious from the start that it would come to this, you know? Oh, right. Yeah. It, the, these things developed over time and, and it just got worse and worse. Now they are fully aware that what they're doing is harmful to society. That, that is true. But when they started, they weren't. So I'm not, I'm not even going to complain about them starting down this path. I'll give them that, you know. Mm-hmm. But now that they have seen where it leads, they they have to find a way to stop doing it. That the harm vastly outweighs the benefits. Now, of course, the benefits are to them, right? And their and their investors. Well, and that's where I was going with this. So, because they're private companies, these all these algorithms are proprietary. They're and therefore they're opaque. So, let's say, well, there's two ways this could. Well, multiple ways. Well, I don't, I don't need to know the details of the algorithms. To, I mean, just broadly, if you the revenue model itself, it, you know, is it, it optimizes, you know, it monetizes customer. Uh, I'm sorry, user behavior, mm-hmm. and so in order to monetize user behavior, you, you know, you have to microscopically observe the users and and observe every everything about them. Everything that they look at, that you have to build a model of their, of them, you, you mm-hmm. know, a predictive model, so that you can predict what they, how they'll react to things, and what they'll click on, and how long they'll stay on, and all this. So you, you build a model of them, and then you manipulate that model, and you, and thereby manipulate them, and that's how you make money. And and so, I mean, I'll need to know the details of the algorithms. It's the fact that they started out with this intention of having a model like that, that has those broad general properties without getting into the microscopic details, the broad general properties of, of making money that way is leading us to this horrible situation. Right. But so given, given the fact that they, that they have an ad based model and that, and so to, to make the most money, they have to maximize engagement without regulation, without some third party. They're not going to do this on their own. That, that's, that's become we're we're going to have to come up with some way. We, we have to start regulating it because, because if we do nothing, I mean, look, there's lots of industries that, you know, just try to make money, but it harms society. I mean, the tobacco industry fell into right re- under regulation. You know, we don't allow the cocaine cartels to uh, to sell everything, you know, although that could be argued that it would be better to make it legal so that it wouldn't make as much money. Right. If you, then you could buy the stuff in a pharmacy uh, right. and, and then treat it as a, an addiction that, you know, is treatable. But the point is, is that we look at things that are harmful to society, and if they are sufficiently harmful, then we finally draw the line and say we can't let this go any further because it's it's going to destroy democracy. You know, it's an existential threat. I mean, I, I I've had fantasies. Uh, if I had a time machine, what would I do? You know, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, one reason why time travel stories are so popular is because so many people think of well, if only we had a time machine, we could we go could back fix it, yeah, and fix it. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm not sure what would be necessary to fix this. Yeah, I, I don't either. know if you could just stop Mark Zuckerberg from making Facebook. That might not do it because somebody else will, will come up with something. But maybe you'd have to go even further back. Maybe even maybe it would be worth like not having the internet at all. Hmm. You know? I mean, 
I don't know if uh, I go that far. Yeah, but, I know that I'm. I know that I'll. I'm probably going to get crucified in the social media for saying <laughs> that. You know, but uh, but I, I I don't think I would go back and and stop the internet. But but just the fact that that would be a topic of conversation illustrates the gravity of the situation we find ourselves in. Right. So my my point is this from a practical standpoint. So let so I think what you said originally was the was true, and that is that given that. And we could talk about the ad-based internet as a separate topic, and, I, and we can come back to that. But from a, assuming that nobody likes to pay for these things, and therefore the way you make money is you monetize through ads, and then the way you get better ads is through data, and then the way you get better data is these algorithms. If we take all that for granted and say that we do want to regulate this, how do, how do you regulate these algorithms without knowing what the algorithms are and having some law around what these algorithms can be? Well, I don't know exactly what the solution should be. I, I, I mean, I don't know if all kinds of advertising would be bad. I mean, if you had users declare what topics they would be interested in seeing ads for, then that means you could advertise to them without studying their behavior. The fact that we study their behavior, I think, carries it uh, a, a major step further. Mm-hmm. That, that's where things get really harmful. But a static declaration saying, well, I'd like to see some ads for bicycles, you know, or I'd like to see some ads for vacations or something. You know, I'm thinking of uh, going to uh, go to Europe this summer. Uh, Let me see some ads for travel to Europe, hotels in Europe, uh, tour packages. You know, just declare that you want to see some ads for these things then that becomes targeted advertising, which means it's more effective advertising than billboards on the highway. So you can get ad revenue. But if instead of a static declaration, you then you study every little nuanced movement or click or thought that crosses their mind, and instead of building a highly detailed model of them that you study and, and update with uh, observations of their microscopic behaviors, you know that's where things really get harmful. Well, and I, here's the other, here's the other part of this that I that I be because of these systems and these algorithms that are now in place. Even even with what you propose, now we still do have systems that allow for these these algorithmic influence campaigns, and and these have been abused by Russia uh, and others. Uh, Cambridge, yeah. Anal- Cambridge Analytica. That's right. Cambridge Analytica played an important role in Brexit. Absolutely. And. And, of course, in the election of Donald Trump. Absolutely. You know, and it was a whistleblower from, from Cambridge Analytica that revealed all this to journalists. Right. And and my point is that even if we kind of went for that ad model, we still have these algorithms in place, and that would not address this particular aspect. Well, no. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that you eliminate the study of people's behaviors, you know, so that you don't you don't keep a record of their behavior. And then, therefore, don't have any use for these algorithmic algorithms that would optimize engagement. I, I, I'm saying that we that we'd be better off if we didn't have these algorithms. Part of the algorithms is to collect observations of every little behavior that the user exhibits, and and to feed that into a model, and and the algorithms operate on the model. I, I'm not saying that we have to totally eliminate ad revenue. As I said earlier, if you simply declare which kinds of ad topics you'd like to see, that would still allow targeted advertising. It just wouldn't be as effective as the kind the targeting that's based on highly you know high resolution models that can predict the behavior of the of the user. 
Well, what I, and as I've said many times, I think that if we just level the playing field again by saying you can't, let's just say you can't do that, just regulate that away, then all of a sudden we're back to where we were, you know, 15, 20 years ago when all ads were contextual. You know, if I'm, if I'm on Google, I'm searching on bikes, then I might show me an ad for a bike. If I'm, if I'm yeah. a, if I'm a housewife reading, you know, good housekeeping, I don't want to be sexist and say that men don't read good housekeeping, but you know, it, if, you know, they would place their ads based on the demographics of the advertising medium, as opposed to the details about the particular buyer of the magazine. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I a friend of mine has a, uh, a social media project uh, that he started a couple of years ago called Okuna, O-K-U-N-A, that lets you have a, a kind of social media environment. It has a lot of the features that you expect a social media platform to have, but it doesn't have any of these algorithms. It doesn't keep any record of what you click on. There's no logging. You can click on anything you want and nobody knows that you clicked on it. Nobody knows. There's not even the slightest trace of logging. You know, I mean, not only are there no algorithms that study your behavior, but there's no collecting the data that such algorithms would, would study. There's nothing. It's just a bunch of postings by people and it's got communities and it's got these, you know, circles of people that it's kind of like Google plus had circles, you know? Yeah. And it's got the kinds of things that you might find on Facebook or, or some of the other social media platforms, but there are no algorithms behind it and there's no collection of data at all, at all. So you could just, browse through it, read articles, click on links, you know, go look at this and look at that, go anywhere you want to go. And nobody ever logs the uh, behavior at all, not even the slightest. Well, ironically, that's, I mean, that's where Facebook started. Facebook started and they, they touted their privacy and they touted themselves as being exactly what you just described. And then over well, time. Yeah. Yeah. But they, they weren't, they didn't understand where it would lead. You know, we understand where this could lead. So the, the entire motivation for the creation of this Okuna platform was specifically to try to save the planet from the uh, horrible consequences of Facebook and things like Facebook. So what is their business? What is their business model? How do they make money? Well, the idea is have two tiers of service. Uh, one is a free tier that, that costs nothing, thereby giving you some network uh, effect. And the other is upselling them on some extra features that they have to pay for and, and thereby getting some revenue. Is it open to everybody? Right? Is this an open service that anybody right now in the audience could go check out and join if they wanted to? Yeah, I think there's a web interface for it. I use an app for it that I, uh, that I get you know, for my iPhone and, and Android phone, but it's not in the app store yet, but it is accessible through the website. So I think it's Okuna dot, what is it? Okuna dot IO, Okuna dot com. I, I don't know. It's okay. It's O-K-U-N-A. So you can Google, Google for it. <laughs> yeah. And I'll put, I'll find and, it. I'll put it in like the show notes for sure. Yeah. And so you can then read postings, and, you know, for free, and you can make an account for yourself. And, and, and I think that it's just free right now. But if you, well, they also have a Patreon and, and a, mm -hmm. you know, a, a GoFundMe kind of thing. Sure. It's, it's, it's severely underfunded at the moment, but 
we're working on that. I say we because I'm I'm a kind of a friend of the project, hmm. but but I, I would I would very much like to see the project succeed. As would I, and there are and there are actually there are others, and I'm sure they're all different in their own way. And I and I'll I'll certainly check out Acuna. But we, but we took out a we we did a little bit of a survey of other uh, alternatives, and yeah. uh, they, they all have their problems. Well, there's you know some of them are are infested with you know far right extremists, and some are just just bad architecture, and there's all kinds of reasons why various alternatives uh, are not working very well but of the of the ones that are out there this one this one's the most normal it, it has a normal population of users <laughs> no extremists as far as we can tell and it has a, a fairly normal set of features that you would expect not not as not quite as advanced as facebook but you know it's only been around for a couple of years and what do you think controls the population? I mean, so I I love the, obviously I love the idea, and I'm I'm dying for some sort of a privacy centric you know alternative to Facebook. But what what do you believe? I mean, why do you know certain groups of people you know gravitate to one and versus another? Why what's to prevent that happening with with this service or any other service? Because I, I, when Facebook started clamping down or Twitter started clamping down, a lot of these people for, for again i don't want to pick on any particular group because we're non-political here but whenever they find that they need to find a new outlet they'll find a new platform and who's to say that that next one would, wouldn't be a kuno how does how do, how do you structure your business to prevent that well so far we we've kind of relied on there, there's a little bit of an immune system from just the other members of the community it has a small population it's it's just a few thousand users right now but that's because we haven't gone the rest of the way and and put it in the app store and the, the reason why we haven't done that is because we're afraid that people are going to upload horrible things mm. and we don't have the staff to uh to filter it you know we have to sort of crowdsource the the filtering well it's funny you brought you bring that up because facebook both facebook and twitter have rolled out new systems for that i don't know if you've seen this or not facebook's got some sort of a council that they're that they're farming some of these decisions off to. And Twitter has this thing called Birdwatcher, I think. Yeah. Uh, that just came out and they're trying to, I think, do similar things where they're trying to create, you know, crowdsource type groups to help moderate. They all they all face the same problems. I mean, well, at least the ones that want to avoid the extreme content. They all face the, the problem of, you know, how do you filter that? Because it's, you know, whatever mechanism you come up with to filter it, it has to scale along with the size of the content. You know, there's 2 billion users on Facebook. So whatever you put in to filter it has got to handle the traffic of 2 billion users. So I don't know if you've noticed or if you've seen this new proposal from Tim Berners-Lee about uh, Solid. And I think this might be an interesting yeah. uh, way to look at some of the stuff where your data is not portable. Because part of the problem with these things is everybody goes to Facebook and Twitter because that's where everybody is. Yeah, you know? I'd like to say something about that. Sure. Um, once you start letting data go places and you try to encapsulate it with various protections, it's, it's a little bit like uh, digital rights management. Mm. DRM schemes have not done well because at some point you have to render the data so that people can see it. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, it can be captured. And so you can't really control your data uh, with, with, a, with what amounts to a DRM scheme. People are just going to get it, and then they're going to like keep it, and they're not going to keep it in the same kind of regulatory framework that you wrote in your software. It, you you might write in your software things 
that, oh yeah, you need these permissions to open it or something or get the keys to decrypt it. But, you know, once it's out, it's out. And, and also the concept of, of distributing the storage doesn't really solve the problem very much. You know, it's not, it's not a problem of concentration of storage. I mean, I think I saw a scheme, I don't know, a couple of years ago where somebody proposed that they had this distributed scheme where they used, maybe it was distributed hash tables or something like GNU Tele had many years ago. And they, they said that it'll let you control your own data and that they have predicted that Facebook will accept this because, because it will relieve Facebook of the terrible, terrible burden of having to purchase disk drives, which are so expensive. <laughs> you know how expensive these disk drives are, you know. And Facebook would love to be relieved of such a horrible burden as having to purchase lots and lots of disk drives. So they'll be happy to let you store the data and control the data yourself. I mean, oh, God. What a, it's an <laughs> yeah, idiotic yeah. idea, you know? Yeah. Well, I had, I had Bruce Schneier on the, on the show actually only about a month ago, a month and a half ago. And we, and I asked him cause he's working with Tim on this and, um, I like to call him Tim. <laughs> and, uh, that what I was describing was not uh, Tim's process. Right, right, right. But I, I think, and I asked him the same question about, well, anybody who wants this data is made available can just copy what's to prevent that. And he basically said nothing other than contracts and regulation. But I think, I think part of what the the idea behind it is portability. Like if I if all my posts to Facebook were in a pod that I controlled, that I and I could take those posts any day and just walk over to Acuna and say transfer all my posts to Acuna, and transfer all my contacts to Acuna, then at least that would give some some portability and allow these startups to have some chance of competing and bringing people over. Well, you you might be able to do something if you had a combination of technology and policy. Where, mm. where you, the policy means laws, mm -hmm. you know, so you can't just solve it all with technology and oh, you sure. can't just solve it all with laws. But if you apply those things together, you might be able to make some progress. So what do you think, you know, as we kind of wrap up here a little bit, what do you, what do you think the net health benefit has been over overall social media? Obviously, I, I think I know where you're going with this, but are we, are we better with it or without it? Is there, is there a way that we could? Oh, we're, we're better without it. I mean, I know that, I mean, I, I have friends who, who, who enjoy social media and they feel like they get a lot out of it, but you know, maybe they do from the point of view of just their own little local experience, but the big picture of social media and how it affects society as a whole, there are, you know, macro effects on civilization that hurt everyone. And, and so you know, you might think you're getting some benefit for just for you, but it means you are going to live in a society that has civil war and, and a collapse of democracy. You know, I mean, the rise of right wing autocracy around the world is fueled in part by social networks, by this business model. And, and we find that democracy is under threat all over the place. I mean, in Brazil, in the United States. In Great Britain, you know, with uh, Brexit to a lesser extent, it's not as bad there as it is in Brazil and under Trump. In Hungary, in Poland, in the Philippines, I mean, right-wing autocracy is, is springing up everywhere. And, and, and it comes in places where there was a democracy before. And, and the population is uh, strongly influenced by these special properties of so social networks driven by that business model. So, 
overall, I just think that the costs are too high. You know, if we could change the algorithms, uh, you know, in, in some kind of regulatory framework and change the, the revenue model, maybe we could have some of the benefits of social networks, you know, charge money for it. Mm. Instead of monetizing uh, user data, monetize money. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and I, I totally agree that there's not a completely technical or a completely policy view of this or a fix for this. But what what do you think about the possibility of using, you know, artificial intelligence, AI or machine learning, ML, using some of these technologies, and these algorithms for good? Is there is there could we use this? And I think this has been tried to some extent. But could yeah, we... if you could have an AI that could recognize that this that these kinds of postings are designed to manipulate election outcomes if they if you know if it's an ad paid for in rubles uh don't take it you know <laughs> i mean really they really there were facebook ads paid for in oh, rubles yeah. that was that was the currency that was in the Mueller report yeah it was in the movie the uh the documentary the great hack that's another one that would be uh that i'd recommend people check out if they haven't already the netflix documentary the great hack yeah so i mean if you had ai that was really smart then maybe it could recognize these things at, at a more sophisticated level and maybe and maybe that could work i i don't know but i but i see it comes down to the revenue model it, it's a revenue model that that generally produces these kinds of results and you could try to block it or tweak it and it, it still leads back to this i don't know uh, i mean you could do some tweaks i haven't studied the details of these um revisions to section 230 you know mm -hmm. the yeah, but instead of just outright overturning the whole law, it tries to tweak it in 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 certain areas. And I haven't studied those yet, so I can't really comment on it yet. But but the fact that you know somebody is sitting down to look carefully at what kinds of tweaks would would be a benefit, that's kind of encouraging. But we need these kinds of tweaks to the revenue model. You know, we have to. We, you know, we're not going to try to stop them from making money, but if they make money this way, I mean, we have the right uh, as a society to say, no, you can't do that to society. The effects are too devastating. Yeah, I agree. By the way, I, I want just as another element of how devastating it can be is, I mean, part of it is just massive lies. You know, I mean, I think it was Mark Twain that said, you know, uh, a lie can get halfway around the world by the time the truth gets its pants on. Right. And, and you know, look at the lie of, of the election. You know, uh, it, it's, it's tearing apart American society. And, you know, you could spread lies like that in, in other countries around the world and cause violence and, and a, a collapse of democracy and a collapse of, you know, civil order. Yeah, and we're obviously seeing some of that now. So something has to be done. I know that there might be some that that are surprised to hear me say things that are, seem to be against freedom of speech. But I, I mean, you know, lies can can get people to do things. Information is not just in the abstract. Oh, it's harmless. It's just information. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Well, yes, they will. If they launch missiles or uh, or mobs. Right. The pen is mightier than the sword is the flip of that. Yeah. All right. So last question. You, and you mentioned a couple things. Uh, but if the audience uh, wants to learn more or perhaps get more involved, what, 
what uh, what books, what websites, what documentaries, what groups might you recommend that they check out? Well, I, I think that it, this this experiment that Okuna has for trying to start a new um, yeah, yeah. social network that's worthwhile. That's worth looking into. Yeah, I will definitely check it out. I, I would recommend people see the social dilemma. Mm. I, I think that there is a crisis of democracy that's we've been going through in the past four years in the U.S., but Europe's going through it too. The rise of right-wing populism is threatening democracy all over the world. I think that, uh, I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing the U.S. restore its uh, alliances in Europe. Europe needs the United States. Europe needs NATO. You know, the, the, after World War II, 70 million people were dead. And uh, everybody looked around and said, we can't let this happen again. Mm. So let's try to build new structures that make it more difficult for this to repeat. Yeah. And so they did. And over decades of effort, they, they built the European Union uh, in order to stop this from happening, a major war in Europe again. And, and part of how that came together, the U.S. played an important role. The Marshall Plan to rebuild Germany you know, uh, instead of punishing them like what happened after World War One, And the, the security framework of NATO that made it easier, made it possible for the EU to come together and to build, uh, the, you know, the growth of Western democracies, which spread to Eastern Europe. And, and I mean, the, this, these institutions, uh, NATO and the United States backing of NATO and the alliances, the transatlantic alliances, and the, and the growth of the European Union and the stability that that brought were all good things and, and were good for the, the growth of, of the, you know, sort of liberal democracies. And so I, I want to see those things preserved and those things have come under threat. So, you know, the sort of uh, framework of, of promoting liberal democracies uh, is important, has to remain intact. And social networks contribute to, you know, the undermining of these things. So that's what's at stake. I agreed. I would say everybody should uh, delete their Facebook app and, and, and WhatsApp also, because that WhatsApp is part of Facebook. Right. Switch, switch to Signal. or or I have a product, you know, it's called Silent Phone from Silent Circle. Yeah. You could switch to that. Unfortunately, that's not free. Uh, and I don't really have any control over that because it's not my company anymore. But you know, you could do secure communications without giving away all your data to Facebook. So get rid of WhatsApp, get rid of Facebook. It doesn't really quite solve it for you because Facebook is not just an erosion of privacy. It also has these global effects that even if you get rid of Facebook for yourself, you find yourself living in a society where everyone else is using Facebook. And that affects elections and that affects uh, everyone tearing themselves apart tearing each other apart. It's not only social networks, but social networks play such an important role because social networks are super optimized because of these uh, algorithms. So it's not enough just to get rid of it for yourself and think that you're done. I mean, that's like trying to avoid global warming by living in an air-conditioned house. <laughs> not exactly a perfect analogy because the air conditioning itself contributes to the problem. So that's the part that doesn't apply. But, you know, getting rid of Facebook just means that you don't swelter. <laughs> but the rest of the world still is. So right. you got to do more than that. It means that what we need to do is to try to change the regulatory environment 
so that it makes it harder for these algorithms to run wild. Well, Phil, that was very fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed talking to you about this, and you've obviously got a lot of strong opinions. Thanks for coming on the show and sharing those with us. It's my pleasure. I really enjoyed that talk with Phil, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I did uh, interviewing him. He's always got a really interesting take on things, and he's seen a lot of things in his time and brings a great perspective to all these things. Now, he talked about this Acuna project, and I was going to put a link in the show notes, and as I looked into it, it looks like they've just very recently, like literally as of the very end of March, taken a new direction. And it sounds like they were kind of soul-searching for a few months, they were having some trouble getting funding, and now it is starting to emerge as a whole new thing. And their new thing is called SOMUS. I guess they said it's from the Latin SUMUS, which means we are. But they uh, f- found some investors. They've supposedly found some celebrity endorsers that will guarantee somehow 30 million people on launch. And uh, right now they're just taking names. So if you want to give them your email address and you want to stay in touch with what that project is doing, I certainly just did. Uh, I'll be very interested to see how that turns out. And maybe you will too. But I'll, anyway, I'll put a link of the show notes uh, to both of those. The little story about what happened with uh, Akuna and the, the link to uh, Somas. So bonus content, Phil and I got off on a couple other tangents and some of them a little more political, uh, where he calls out some more, a lot more specific things. And I thought that would actually probably be better done as a little bit of a private bonus content for the patrons. I don't think it took away from uh, the discussion we had today in terms of, I don't think you missed anything that was super critical uh, uh, from today's podcast, but I thought it would it kind of made sense to set that aside and do that separately. So if you're at all interested, maybe now would be a great time to become a patron, go to patreon.com and search for firewalls. Don't stop dragons. And of course I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. And one other, one other little bonus content uh, from Phil is, you know, as we were talking and just kind of off air and he was, you know, he asked me, you know, why does your podcast have such a funny name? <laughs> so uh, I explained that to him and we talk about that a little bit too. All right. So we did everything here in one go, which means that we will have a news show again next week. And there's plenty to talk about. In fact, I just, as I was recording this today, I ran across an article, apparently half a billion Facebook users' information was leaked online somehow. So I'll be looking into that and I'll have the full story next week. Also next week, there's going to be an interview posted from Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, about these upcoming privacy changes and all the pushback that they have received, particularly from advertising companies like Facebook, about how the mere act of giving users an obvious, clear choice of whether they want to be tracked has caused such a furor. So, you know, I'm sure I will read that and have something to say about that as well. There's and plenty of other things. One thing I will mention really quick is make sure that you update all of your iOS devices, your iPads and your iPhones. There was a nasty security bug that was found recently that was being actively exploited. So make sure that you are up to date on all of your iOS devices. After the new show, I've got another really interesting interview, kind of a different one than we've normally done. And this is talking to somebody from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, but it's and it's about cell site simulators. You may have heard it kind of generically referred to as a Stingray, which is kind of like calling tissues Kleenex. You know, Stingray was actually a brand name, but it was so popular that it's kind of been used to generically refer to all of these cell site simulators. But um, we're going to talk about how they work, how they're being used. And obviously the point of view we're going to take on this is that it's not a good thing, but he's done some really interesting research and it's a lot more 
kind of nuts and bolts and hands-on. This is him actually trying to create detectors for these and determine where these things are located. And along the way, he came up with some really interesting info about how they work and how we might, as a society, at least be able to detect when these things are used and maybe avoid them. So anyway, fascinating, fascinating interview. That'll be coming up after the new show. And of course, lots of other interviews in the hopper. Great stuff on the way. So if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. Actually, I went to look and go see if there's any new reviews. I didn't see any more reviews on the book, but I couldn't get to the review page on the podcast. I'm not sure what's going on with that. I need to call Apple, uh, call up Apple and see what's going on. But there's something wrong with the podcast page. Uh, the podcast itself is still feeding fine. Um, I, I, everybody's getting the podcast. But if you try to go to the iTunes web page for the podcast, it doesn't. It tries to redirect you to the podcast app, and there's something something wrong there. Anyway, so I'll be looking into that. So that'll wrap us up for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. Again, stay tuned for some really cool stuff coming from Patreon. I'm going to have a big marketing push when I get this super secret project done and in my hot little hands. We got some merchandise coming. I, oh, I, I just commissioned and a logo for the business. I kind of had the branding kind of wrapped around the, the, the dragon image as the background image for the book. Uh, but now I actually have a real for real logo that I commissioned from an artist. And that was what I needed so I could start offering merch, swag. So anyway, lots of great stuff coming. Stay tuned for more information about that. So that's going to do it. Hopefully all of you are getting your vaccinations uh, pretty much open to just about everybody now or coming close on that. So make sure you get out there. Make sure you help other people to do it as well. And just in general, as always, stay safe. And until next week, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.